It was such a treat to be here last night. Just such warm welcome from everyone and some old names and faces that we're seeing after um, not seeing you for many, many years. And we were here, I, we haven't yet figured out how long ago that was that we were here in this church sharing um, on marriage and family and we stayed with the MacGuffins and it was a real treat. All I know is that Angela thinks that maybe it was when they were having their first baby. So <laughs> Four, 14 years ago 14, or so. 15, 16 yeah. years ago, somewhere in there. So, yeah. Um, yeah. but it's, it's great. It's been warm and friendly and thank you so much yeah. for your hospitality and making us feel so at home and you have great coffee out there. <laughs> I really am enjoying that coffee, so thank you very yep. much. And I, I wanted to mention, uh, Pastor <clears throat> Keith, Penny, uh, thank you very, very much for honoring the us invites. by having us uh, share. It's it's privilege just to be here, uh, uh, just a double honor to share. Um, you know, I was thinking it was 25 years ago. Um, some of you I've, I've known for that many years. I got uh, got involved in your lives and you and, and ours through Antioch Churches and Ministries. Um, and, Remember that, uh, ACM? I, 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 I am so grateful for the ongoing relationship. Um, and, uh, and I mean that sincerely. You're, uh, you've come many times to the North Country. I know some of the other you know, brothers here have come to minister. Um, it's really been inspiring to us, and so thank you. You have, you have stirred us to love and good works through the years. Um, I don't know, if, is Rick Paladin here this morning? I, Rick, you're, I didn't get to say hi to you last night. Um, it's great to see you. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I stayed in touch with Rick especially. We'll talk uh, in the second session this morning. We'll talk about some of the church planting we've done. But especially in this last wave of church planting, one of the things I was often doing was uh, either contacting Rick or uh, Larry Paladin and his brother, um, uh, just to find out what they were doing in Pittsburgh, because I, I discovered that they were about six months or so ahead of us, and I decided I could learn from their uh, successes and failures. Um, and so uh, it was very inspiring, and the kinds of relationships we've known uh, really have been inspiring, so thank you very, very much. Um, Pastor Keith, when, when he invited us to come, he, he told us to come and just share ourselves. And so um, we certainly want to be, you know. Make As if we have anything else to share. <laughs> we could um, make things up if you wanted. <laughs> tell all kinds of I, stories. I, I do pretend really well. Um, um, one of the things we do love is worship, worship music, and uh, just things like that. So one of the things I wanted to share this morning was... Uh, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite all-time hymns. Um, and uh, it's called Arise, My Soul, Arise. Um, you may be familiar with it, uh, perhaps, perhaps not. Um, I suspect I, it has Celtic roots, yeah. the sound of it. Well, sounds sound very of much it, yep. Yeah, true. Irish. Um, it, uh, it's a great old hymn, and it's very, very meaningful to me uh, because uh, in coming to Christ, I came to Christ with a... Uh, an acute awareness of my sin condition. I came to Christ with a, uh, I'll say a crushing sense of the weight of sin in my life and uh, the, the relief and the joy that came through forgiveness, complete cleansing in Christ, um, just it's breathtaking. Um, you know, it's kind of like I... I you know how much you're loved by how much you're forgiven. And I, and I had a, an awareness of, of the depths of my sin. And this hymn, 
really uh, in some ways reflects uh, that sense of just wow, wow, wow. my soul arise shake off thy guilty fears the bleeding sacrifice on thy behalf appears before the throne my surety stands before the throne my surety stands my name is written on his hand Seed, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead, his blood atoned for all our race, his blood atoned for all our race, and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. The Father hears him pray, his dear anointed one, he cannot turn away, the presence of his son, the spirit answers to the blood, the spirit answers to the blood, and tells me I am born of God. My God is reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear, he owns me for his child, I can no longer fear, with confidence I now draw nigh, with confidence I now draw nigh, and Father Abba, Father Confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Amen. Amen. Do you want me to turn this off? No, stay here. Oh, stay here. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Isn't that a great hymn? It's, uh, it's just rich, 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 rich. Um, so what we want to do um, this morning, and again, thank you for the honor of, of being able to share. Um, we want to talk about two areas that uh, have been very, very significant in the ministry um, 
and uh, will hopefully be uh, inspiring um, uh, and also, in a sense, for you as, as leaders, also empowering and equipping. So um, uh, in the first session, we're going to be talking about family building, multi-generational building. And then the second session, we're going to be talking about the, the church planting and some of the things that God has done uh, uh, over, the, over the years uh, in the ministry in the North Country. Um, uh, our church was established in 1973, um, and then uh, the pastor who established it uh, was from Florida, uh, a brother named Lonnie Langston. And uh, Lonnie had a had a vision that uh, the church in Madrid, New York, small small town, uh, was going to be like the hub of a wheel with many spokes coming off. In other words, he envisioned a church planting movement uh, springing forth. Uh, as a matter of fact, when he incorporated the church, he incorporated it as Christian Fellowship Centers of New York uh, Incorporated. In other words, he, en he envisioned that. And so starting then in 1981-82, we started church planting. And so uh, there have been now six plants, and we're on our seventh uh, in, in the North Country region. So we'll be talking about that in, uh, uh, in the second session. But firstly, we want to talk about uh, multi-generational building, and I know that's a, a value that the churches in our NRP carry. Um, you know, one of the things that I've I've realized as as guest ministry has come up. By the way, we really are in kind of an isolated. It's a it's an unusual area. You don't go there by accident. No, you know, uh, you, you have to go there on purpose. But it um, really isn't the edge of the world. <laughs> no, it's, we've had we've had friends come up from Long Island, and they get you know halfway there, and they think. Are we there yet? Are we? Yeah. It, it, does this place really exist? Where are we going to? Yeah, <laughs> it it feels far far away because it's just not a it's not on a thoroughfare. Uh, we're tucked right along the. Uh, the Canadian border, the St. Lawrence River. So um, uh, very, very special. But we, when I have guests come in, one of the things I like to do is glean from them. I take time with uh, the guest ministry that comes in. And one of the things that um, I've realized talking to the guests that have come, the brothers who've come to share prophetic presbytery and other ministry, is that in our midst, God has clearly done something with multi-generational building. In other words, there's been something deposited, something has happened. And so, not that it's perfect uh, by any means, but we want to share in some ways out of what the story, how we how we came into this, and also some of the things that's got things that God's doing. So, um, we'll uh, we'll we'll introduce you in a sense to our family. Uh, we'll be sharing a little bit of the story, and then Darlene's going to be sharing um, a a Bible lesson uh, that out of the book out of the book of Exodus that's really really quite profound. So, uh, let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you. We thank you that uh, uh, the work of Christ. It didn't begin with us. Uh, the work of God's been going on for generations. And uh, we thank you for that. We thank you that we are now the, uh, the torch bearers. A torch has been handed to us in our generation to serve you and to not only impact our generation, but to impact future generations Amen. as well. And so we pray uh, this morning, would you, uh, would you open our hearts to, to hear from heaven? Amen. Hey, first, um, family photos. Can you uh, put up the uh, photo of the full group? Uh, this is the most recent uh, gathering where we have most of the crew together. Um, this That's my mom and dad with us. Yep. This is, uh, I think, uh, by the way, there's 
Uh, in addition to us, there's graduation. four couples uh, from the North Country who are here. Raise your at hands, y'all, or stand up uh, or something. Yeah, stand, stand up, stand up, stand up. Stand You're up. our peeps, man. Yeah, yeah. All the way. Yeah. Amen. Um, yeah. So this. Yeah. Um, uh, Keith already mentioned Daniel Paladin. Uh, he's a son-in-law to us, our daughter Brietta, and their newest baby, Frederick, um, uh, their 10th child. And um, so this was their first son's graduation um, uh, a year and a half ago. It's tough to get the whole crew together. Um, so we don't have a more comprehensive photo. Um, I think everyone's there except Julesy, right? Yep. Yeah, at that time. Uh, it's just that there have been oh, new some grand more, more yes. grandchildren. Because he's, he's grandchild number 31 for us. Number 32 is back home, and number 33 is going to be born next week or so. She's so, due next week. So that's, uh, that's the full crew. Um, then the most recent, now we have nine children. The most recent picture of the nine that I could find, if you could uh, put that one up there. It's a wedding Oop. picture oh, yeah. from 2011. Um, and, uh, That's our Louisa. She's uh, number five in the lineup in getting married. And then our children, their spouses, and the grands that we had then. So, um, and I had to go back to 2011 because one of the daughters, um, kind of like... The four, beautiful brunette with their big smiling face the right there. Side. Uh, just on this side of Louisa in the champagne-colored dress, for those of you that like fashion. <laughs> Rick would be like, champagne? <laughs> Um, yep. uh, she's not often up in the North Country, so don't get, we don't get to see her that often. She lives in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, she's a professional musician. Um, and sadly, uh, 10 years ago, she really walked away from the Lord. Uh, that's been a heartbreak to us. So and I just if you think of Julesy, pray for her, please. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, we, have, we have eight uh, children living in our area, serving the Lord. Uh, but our Julia... You know, there's an ache in our hearts. Um, you know, I, I've had to, you know, realize, and I'm sure some of your parents have, um, having, having eight children who are vibrant in Christ doesn't make up for the one who's not at the table. Uh, you know, it's the, it's the, the parable of the lost sheep. Um, you don't say, well, eight's pretty good. Um, uh, there's an ache that we've carried. And I just want to testify uh, that God's going to bring her home. Um, and I'll just share a quick, quick testimony. We were doing a, uh, a parenting conference in January, February, February of 2011, uh, 13 rather. And um, uh, we showed, uh, I think it might have been that, that photo um, uh, to, the, to the group. And I didn't, I didn't mention anything about the struggles that Julia was having. Uh, simply showed that photo. And uh, then we went on. We were doing the parent training conference. Um, and uh, Friday night and then Saturday morning. During the break Saturday morning, uh, there was a sister who came up to us. And uh, it was kind of interesting. Very she, nervously and very ashamed and, and very nervous. Very it was very funny. Nervous and we apologetic. Like, and she said, uh, uh, she said to us, she said, um, you know, I, I don't know how to say this. And uh, I said, well, what is it? She said, well, I, I, I hate to even say it. I mean, um, and look I at I said, your well, picture well, up there, everything. It's, you've got a beautiful family. I don't know why I'm saying this. Yeah. And uh, we finally got her to tell us what she was going to tell us. Um, and she said, I don't know what this means. She said, she's coming home. She's coming home. She said, I don't know. I don't know what that means. She said, I, 
And we said to her, we know what it means. And that was that was February of 2013. On average, every four months since then, somebody from somewhere on planet Earth contacts me. Email, phone call. Brother Rick, I had a dream. Brother Rick, God showed me something. Brother Rick, I don't know what. The, some people don't even know what's gone on. And they're sharing dreams and visions. And the theme every time is she's coming home. She's coming home. She's coming home. She's coming home. Amen. Amen. We love, we love all nine children. We love our Julia. And uh, I share that to testify of the goodness of God, but also so that you might carry uh, a burden to pray for her in your hearts. Father, I thank you for Julia today and do ask that you would minister to her. Lord, our confidence is in the work of the Spirit. Uh, Lord, the word that was sown in her heart, I pray, Spirit of God, would you breathe upon it? Would you stir it? Would you, would you breathe upon the embers? and bring her home. Amen. Amen. Thank you. um, So anyway, guest ministry comes in. One of the things they're they're noting is, and this is true in uh, probably a lot of your churches, that there is an activity of the Holy Spirit, but there's also family building. And one of the things that I'm hearing from guests who come is that that's not often the case. In other words, you'll have churches that are involved in the activity of the Holy Spirit, charismatic gifts, you know, some powerful preaching or churches where there's a lot of good, strong families, but not a lot of times both. And what they're seeing is that there's a general strength, not a perfection, but a general strength or a growing strength in both of those. And so what I've had to realize is that God has done something and to celebrate it, to value it, to guard it, uh, and then to say, hey, what can we do to to move to the next level? I want to share a little bit of the early years story for me and in some ways how we stumble into that into the things we have because both by the way both things the family building and also the church building I feel like I'm just so blessed by the Lord I have stumbled into divine strategy I'm not one of those guys who like has a 10-year plan uh, I usually have a 10-minute plan, um, at, at least. Honey, um, what are we doing tomorrow? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. Um, you know, I remember in college, there were, there, were, there were people, you know, in college, and, you know, you, you talk about what's going to happen, and they had five-year plans and 10-year plans. I'm like, that's awful. I just, that's no way to live. Um, so I, but I've stumbled. So I make the plans. <laughs> By the goodness of God, I've stumbled into divine strategy, and in some ways, family building is one of those areas. Um, When we got married, uh, you know, we weren't thinking large family, we weren't thinking multi-generational building, we weren't thinking touching future generations through our own seed. I mean, that just, you know, we, uh, a few months before we got married, um, Darlene shared a little bit last night, uh, we were engaged. Um, maybe just a well, month and a half. All I shared was long before we were engaged. Yeah, the wrestling true. match yeah. about the concept of marriage. marriage yep. I had a second wrestling match Yes, when and we were engaged. We were, in, we were engaged, and I was noticing, you know, we would go out and we'd be out shopping or, you know, taking walks, and we would see women, you know, with, with children, with babies or things like that, and Darlene would, like, sneer. Um, physically, I mean, I mean it was visually, uh, really, 
sneer. Yeah, I yeah. mean, she would sneer. She would she would mutter things that hidden. were like unkind. <laughs> um, and uh, I kind of wear my face. What is that called? Something on your sleeves. Yeah, my face, my your, your feelings, something. Your, my heart. Your heart on you, your sleeve. Heart, yeah. my heart on my sleeves. Um, <laughs> my uh, face shows the heart on my sleeve. Something so, like that. I sneered. You sneered, and so finally I said, "I think she's got a problem." Um, um, and so I, so I said to her, I said, I said, I, I don't know, you know, what's going on here, but you seem to have an attitude toward, toward women with children. Um, Losers. That's what the attitude was. <laughs> well, and, and she was very, very, very honest. Um, and uh, she, she had a real problem. Maybe you could. Well, it was just. I mean, I won't take long. It was just another one of those wrestling matches. I mean, fortunately, we were honest enough with each other that I realized, oh, he's, he's thinking there's something wrong with my attitude about children. My attitude about children is spot on, honey. <laughs> they are snotty-nosed things that will interrupt your life. Um, and so he, he said that to me, and I, we just looked at each other and said, I think we're going to have to put this on hold. Because, um, and he was saying, it's not like I think we're going to have children, but I need to know that if God ever asked us to, you'd be willing. And I'm like, are you kidding? Why would he ever ask us to do that? That would ruin everything. So um, I, I went home and I said, Lord, um, what is it, what, what does your word say? <laughs> Thought I, I would have thought I would have learned by now, right? But I went to the word and I, I found out that God really cherished children. God somehow thought they were a gift. Uh, you know, and I really didn't like that word very much. And I really took... I, <laughs> so I had another long, long night of wrestling with the Lord. Not sleeping, but... I mean, here it was, that poor pillow getting punched and crying and wrestling and my covers were a mess and I was a mess and my long blonde hair was all over the place and I was just wrestling with me because I wanted to yield to the word, but I did not like that word. So the best I could do, come morning light, I found myself on my knees once again with the Bible in front of me saying, Lord, I see what your word says. I don't like what your word says, Lord. And I hope, Lord, please don't ever call me to have children, but if you ever do, I will believe your word. I will believe that what your word says is good and that it will be good for me. But please, God. <laughs> don't. And I, I knew that I, that was it. I had relinquished it to the Lord and I was able to say to Rick, you know what? This is where I'm at, and if God ever says it, it's a time for you to have children, I, I would be willing. And that's, that's all he needed to know, and that's all I needed to know at the time. If God had ever said, yeah, it's going to be nine, I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> Not sure I would have signed up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what Darlene said to me was, I'm willing to be willing. She couldn't change her feelings. That's significant as, you know, as we're walking the Christian life and as we're working with other people. You can't change how you feel, but you can make a decision to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And so she shared her willingness 
to be willing, and we, we, we then move forward. Um, and so fast forward, uh, around the time we had, uh, you know, our first, maybe second child, Brietta, our second child, I'm looking around and I'm looking at pastors. By then I was on staff at the church and in ministry, and I'm looking at pastors in the area, which I, I just love meeting with pastors in, in our region. I, I really love it. Uh, but one of the things I noticed was a lot of families in crisis and a lot of children who were struggling. Um, and I said, I don't know much about this family thing, but what I do know is I, I, need, I need to see my children, I, I need to see healthy family more important than pastoring. Um, if I have to do one or the other, I'm going to do the family thing. That's got to be the priority. And the ministry has to come out of the overflow of family. Um, and I think that's 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, uh, that ministry flows out of the overflow of what's going on in a healthy family. And I said, I've got to learn. And so I started becoming a student of the, the families around me. And I identified in the church the ones that I thought were strong and healthy. And I was, I was like watching them. You know, they didn't know, but I'm watching how they walk into church. I'm walking how they handle worship. We're, we're asking questions when we're with them at their homes. And I'm just, I've just become a student of how to do the family thing. And in some ways, it became very, very significant because I said somehow that, that has to be something, something we really learn. By the way, I, I didn't come from like a terribly broken family, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a home where, where the word of God was revered. It wasn't a, and so I was in some ways learning, had some good things from my past, but also was learning, uh, learning things biblically. Um, so then you get to 1983. Uh, we're a few years into ministry. Um, uh, we've got two children. And one of the concerns in the congregation was that the state of the schools was deteriorating such that we needed to do something congregationally for our for our children. Um, and for those it, of you that weren't around back then, I mean, Christian Day schools were popping up like, I can't remember the rate. The rate was amazing. Yeah, they were popping up everywhere. Yeah, um, a and so a -C -E, you know, some Alpha, of our parents Omega. were yeah. pretty interested in finding out about that because they were getting concerned. So, um, so we decided we were going to start a, a school at our church, um, and. Uh, uh, so I decided in, in anticipation of that, I went to Syracuse, New York, a few hours away, and Rochester, New York, uh, an, a, a little farther away. And I toured Christian schools, two Christian schools in each, in each place, just to find out uh, what was going on and to, to learn. And so I uh, enjoyed those times of touring. But what was interesting, I had one of those, it was like life-changing, brief conversations at the end of one of the tours. I mean, I, there are moments where it's like God changes your life. And this is one of those. The, uh, the fellow, he was the associate pastor of the church. He was the principal of the school, a very, you know, very strong uh, Christian school in the Rochester area. He sat down with me and he said this. He said, I, I can see you're very excited about the, the Christian school. I said, yes. He said, I want you to know something. Where we have students whose parents are deeply involved in their lives, we're seeing great results. But where we have students whose parents are not deeply involved in their lives, we're seeing the same problems that they're seeing in the public schools. I said, suddenly it was like, I realized the institution isn't the answer. 
And I, men I mentioned last night, you know, we live in a, a hyper-individualized society. We also live in a hyper-institutionalized society at the same time. The reliance we have on institutions is enormous. We don't realize it. Well, that's to free us so that we have more individual liberty. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> and I realize it's not the institution of Christian school, it's parents. And it was a paradigm shift of thinking because I realized what we need to focus in is not the children, although there's nothing wrong with good children's ministry Please. and good training, all for that. But what we really need to focus on is training parents. And so I, I came back to uh, the North Country, and uh, there was a woman who, uh, uh, she was uh, part of the pioneering team to help get the, the Christian school launched. And I said, I don't know what, what we need to do, but whatever we do with this Christian school, it's got to involve the parents. I mean, like, really deeply. That our target is no longer the students. It's got to be training parents. And she said, hmm. She said, well, I, I heard that out on the West Coast, the Pacific Northwest, this is 1983, so yeah. it's pre-internet. <laughs> but we were, we feel isolated now. We were really isolated then. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was no internet. There was no way to know what was going on in some place on the West Coast. She but. said, but I heard that there are some people who are doing something called homeschooling. And I said, well, can you possibly find out? She said, well, I'll try. So a month later, she said, I've made contact. <laughs> It was, it was like reaching Mars or, you know, like <laughs> extraterrestrials, you know. I made contact with a group of people. And you know what? They're not only teaching their kids at home, but they love it. They're I mean, they're just, they're loving, investing in the next generation. So um, I said, well, whatever we do, it's going to have to be a major investment in the parents. And so we shifted our emphasis at that time from the Christian school to a, a homeschooling program, which I'll mention, we started at that time, we hired her for 20 years, we had her on staff. Um, and what she did in those 20 years was teach parents. She, she was in the field of education, so she understood the whole paradigm of, you know, curriculum and, and what, you know, thinking through educational processes. But she understood, oh, mostly we need to train parents to understand how to invest in their children and not strictly even in the schooling process, but in life. Yeah. Um, and so she really took that and ran with it. Yeah, much of her, I mean, she was a, she's an expert in the field of education, so she could diagnose all kinds of problems and, and, and assure parents, you know, you're not going to break these kids um, by having them at home. But one of the things she did was she diagnosed deeper family issues and was training parents to get on the same page uh, with sometimes just life in general. She was training parents to actually love their children um, and what we discovered was that there was a mentality, and I don't know if you've seen this, maybe you haven't, but a mentality among parents that it's kind of like, you know, I'm happy to have some kids, can't wait till they're five and go to school. And go to school so psh, I can have a life again. And we're realizing that's not really a good attitude. That's kind of like a variation 
of what Darlene was experiencing. <laughs> Instead of realizing we get the joy, the joy of investing. Yeah, discipleship is hard work. It's messy, but it's a joyful labor. And so we, we engaged, and she, she was on staff for 20 years. She, she was actually on staff until she came to me in 2001, said, I think I've worked myself out of a job because what we've done is we've trained a, trained a generation of parents, and now their kids are part of our homeschool program, and their kids have come up being parented, and they actually know how to do this. And that was the, that was the thing that, at the time, I realized, instead of just training children, and again, there's nothing wrong with great children's ministry. I'm not against that, and if you, you, know, if you want to start a school, that's fine. But what I realized was, if all we do is touch children, and we don't train parents how to parent, children grow up, and they don't know how to parent. They haven't, it, it hasn't been modeled. By touching the parents, the next generation started to come up, and they understood parenting. So... So we started this program. We call it Christian Fellowship Academy. It's a homeschooling program, and it's still functioning. It's, I think we're in about our 40th year now. Uh, Daniel Paladin is the principal of the school, so he's the director. Um, so if you have any questions, ask him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or ask Brianna, he says. Yeah. Uh, 160, 70 students, something like that. Um, and uh, so it's, it's really a wonderful, in a sense... It's not simply that we're touching children through it, we're touching parents. And I want you to catch the, the picture here is of a community where we're intensely investing in parents, how to parent, how to deal with the discipline issues. Um, the woman I talked about, Debbie Gordon, uh, one of the things she would constantly do as she went into homes was tell people, don't worry about the math, don't worry about the reading, they're going to learn that. What you need to do is learn how to order your home. You need to learn how to discipline your children. You need to learn how to be a parent. Um, the problem wasn't the math and the, you know, the science and that kind of thing. The problem was families in chaos. Um, and shoveling them off to the institution doesn't solve that problem. It actually perpetuates it. Um, and so she was oftentimes, you know, a lot of times she'd go in and, and she was on a, a two-week cycle where she would go through all the homes. She would spend two to three hours in every home. In this, every, the, two weeks. every two weeks. Um, that's, that was just her job. I'm saying that because in addition to preaching, in addition to men's meetings, in addition to women's meetings, which are all good, we had to make an intentional investment. She was on staff. And that, kind, that intentional investment eventually paid off. And what we're seeing now is generations coming up, and I marvel. I mean, I'm like, I'm, I'm looking at the, you know, the younger couples, and it's, to me it's quite amazing the sense in which they have, they've understood parenting, and they're now training their children, and this thing is mushrooming. I mean, there's an exponential increase. Um, and so that was, that was part of what was happening. Now, at the time we had this shift, I realized as a pastor, I, I don't know what this could look like in 40 years, but imagine, imagine if we empowered parents 
to accept their responsibility. Imagine if we could teach them to order their homes, order their lives, to to love investing in their sons and daughters, to really to really make that a priority, um, to shift the responsibility of parenting away from the institution yeah. onto where it belongs, the moms and dads. Right. Imagine what, what could happen. By the way, some of my language was, I kept saying to the dads and moms, don't look to the superintendent of schools anymore. You're the superintendent of the school, and I'm not the superintendent of your home school. God has charged you to train up your children. Will you embrace that? And he will empower you to do it. I started to think, what could happen? What could happen in sibling relationships? What could happen in parent-child relationships? What could happen in the, the natural growth then from generation to generation? I had a kind of like a, a vague imagining and also realized this is discipleship at a level that, yeah, that's what I ought to be doing. This is, this is where I should be investing myself. I want to share um, the story. Uh, some of you might know this because you're from the Pittsburgh area. Uh, but in the late 1980s, Paul O'Neill uh, took the position as CEO of Alcoa. Um, and at the time, Alcoa was struggling. It was a struggling company. Um, and he came and he... He came where? He came to, to Alcoa, okay. moved to Pittsburgh, uh, took over Alcoa as the CEO. And in his opening speech, he shocked the investors for sure, because what he said was, we're going to make Alcoa a safe company. And he didn't follow the normal new CEO script, which is we're going to work together and we're going to improve you know, stocks and you know, all this stuff. He said, we're going to make it safe. We've got a dangerous business. We're going to go for zero accidents. Um, and the world was kind of shocked by that. A lot of investors actually fled. Well, what happened was, he meant it, by the way, he focused on safety. Years later, we look back and we realize, ah, he focused on safety. But by focusing on safety, the company had to make shifts, deep shifts in their thinking in terms of organization, in terms of order, in terms of, I mean, you priorities. priorities. Everything had to shift. So he made a major cultural shift in the organization, not by saying we're going to make a major cultural shift, just trust me. He said, we're going to make safety our priority. And suddenly, everybody in the company is starting to get ordered. If you read the story of Alcoa from I think 88 to 2000 when he was the, the CEO. It really is quite an amazing, amazing story of transformation with the company. What happened was he focused on something and it had reach into all these other areas of the organization. What I'm saying is you focus on parenting, you focus on families, it has a reach into other areas of discipleship that you as leaders are wanting to, you're wanting to do that in people's lives. You're wanting to help them get all these things in order. Focusing on the family, focusing on parenting, embracing what God's doing in that area has a reach into these areas that's absolutely profound. When I'm disciplining people, or not dis disciplining, yeah, sometimes that happens. When I'm <laughs> discipling people, <laughs> Let me add them, right? Um, 
when I'm discipling people, a lot of times, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to ask, you know, like all these kind of like crazy questions. I, I just, how's your family? How are things in your home? What's going on? What's going on in your home? Because a lot of times the curriculum for discipleship, I believe God, God makes it. <laughs> You know, we're all searching for a curriculum, and I'm not saying good materials aren't, you know, aren't are really helpful. But a lot of times, the diagnostic probes are, how's your marriage? How's your family? Th those are the diagnostic probes. You know, when I go to the doctor, uh, he, he presses on certain areas. And he's, he's, he's probing, and it turns out that you can't really, you can't do the Christian life in a healthy way without focusing intensely on family issues. It doesn't mean we're perfect. What it means is we say, Lord, we wanna grow in that area. Amen. So now 40 years later, and it's, it's almost 40 years now that we started the Christian Fellowship Academy and we had this paradigm shift. I just wanna say, as a pastor, it, it, it made, there were some changes because instead of having a, um, a lot of meetings. We were a meeting-oriented church. We had to make a shift. We didn't have as many public meetings, and today we're still not as public meeting-oriented, maybe as some churches. Um, that was a big shift for us, um, but the investment has paid off absolutely amazingly. Uh, I'll just share one story, and then I want I want Darlene to share some of her journey and some of the the thoughts from from her, her favorite Bible character, Jochebed, Moses' mother. We had, uh, we had uh, some students. We have four universities in our area. Um, uh, there were four students uh, from Ghana uh, who were with so us. Just a couple of years ago. Yeah, uh, sometime in the last couple of years. And... Uh, having dinner with us. Yeah, they were having a meal with us, and we, we decided to ask a question. What, you know, you're here from Ghana. Um, some of them came with Christian backgrounds. Some of them, I think, might have come to Christ around the time they, they came to the U.S. Uh, they're university students, doctoral candidates, I think most of them in the area of mathematics. Um, and we said, what has impacted you about the church? You know, about, yeah, about being in the North Country. What, what are you going to go home with? What's, what's the one thing besides, you know, the cold weather? <laughs> we don't want to hear about the cold weather. Um, and... Uh, to a man, the four of them said, family. Amen. Being in your homes, watching your families, being around the culture of healthy, fair marriage and family. That's, I didn't know what they would say. I wouldn't know, you know, they might have said, you're it's, preaching, brother. Yeah, well, they even, yes. <laughs> Obviously, that's what it is. Yeah, they, in fact, they, they, they understood that that would be the obvious thing. They said, well, I mean, we have great Bible studies, and it's, all that stuff is great, but it, it's what we see in the families. It's what we're experiencing in your homes. Yeah. So I'm just trying to give you a sense of the paradigm shift, the investment, uh, but the fruit these many years later. Um, and so... I want you to share now just maybe some of your own journey, but also um, what, what God put in Darlene became critical. Uh, again, she's, of course, she shared enough of her story already so that you know she didn't like fall into this mothering thing naturally. Yeah. Um, um, 
And it's a testimony to the power of the word of God. We were, I was just talking about that with some folks this morning, the fact that, you know, um, yeah, it all begins with Jesus and getting saved. That's the biggest transformation from dark to light. Hello. Um, and the Holy Spirit, who's our teacher and our guide. But I'm, I'm, I've been through seasons in my life, and I know people who have had salvation, and they, they you know, have experienced the Holy Spirit, but they're not in the Word of God. The Word of God has the power to transform us. And... If you believe my testimony that I sneered at women with babies and that I hated the thought of marriage and I didn't really like men, you know that I was a classic feminist and I have been changed by the word of God. Amen. Amen. So when I opened last <clears throat> night, Keith said, just come and share who you are. And I'm like, well, I am who I am because of the word of God. I would not be this person today. So. I just have to underscore that to you. Let the word of God be live and living in your life. Even if you've been walking with the Lord for 50 years, we need that lively interaction with the word of God. It's amazing. But so here we are, you know, the Lord did speak to my heart and said, it's time to have children. And I was like, okay, then <laughs> I can do that. And I mean, I had somebody come to me, which is another testimony that just the Lord is faithful, isn't he? I, I had my first little baby girl, Danica, with, you know, smeary red hair on her head. And just, I was absolutely smitten. I mean, I was smitten. And um, she said, I have never seen anybody love a baby the way you love a baby. And I, first of all, isn't the Lord amazing? When he does a transformation, he does a transformation. <laughs> This isn't like, okay, I'm mustering it up. This was God's work in me. But I still was like, yeah, but another one? Not so sure, you know what I mean? And then, you know, baby Brianna comes along and I'm spitting all over again and I'm shocked. Wait, she's got shocking black hair and she's so opposite. I mean, it was just amazing to me. I was like, cause you know, you've got one and you're like, why would I do this again? I already know what kind of babies I make. <laughs> Why would I do that? And, and Brianna was so different in every way, and it was just wonderful. Um, and still, you know, a third one? No way, Lord. What, 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 what? So I was still struggling a bit, to say the least. Um, that's another story. The Lord, it was through really examining, you know, pro-life issues and just the issue of life and oh, the depth that God reached to in my heart um, in studying that, um, the challenge to my heart, are you anti-abortion or are you pro-life? And I was like, oh. God's word messes with us. And I wanna say to you, he wants to mess with you today. Please, let's keep our hearts tender before the Lord. But I'm reading Titus one day. Um, I don't remember how, when this was. I'm not so good about keeping track, and I don't remember which child it was. That's usually the way I remember everything. I think I was nursing, baby, whatever, you know. Um, <clears throat> the older women likewise, this is from Titus, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. 
And I mean, I chewed on all of that a whole lot. You can believe that. But really, I, the Lord hit me over the head with like, admonish that they'd be teachers of good things, that they would admonish young women to love their children. And I thought, well, isn't that kind of natural? I mean, you know, like a, a mother cat loves her kittens. and <laughs> It's just natural, right? Loving children, it seems like a natural enough thing. Um, so why does Paul seem to think that women need to be admonished or trained to do this? Um, maybe, maybe it's not as automatic as I think it is. Maybe it does require some choosing, maybe some very purposeful choosing. Um, and maybe, just maybe, there's a measure of self-control involved. Maybe even self-sacrifice. So these are the things, you know, I'm contemplating. So um, I'm going to share with you an exploration of where I started so many years ago as I sought, sought to find out, well, what does Paul mean by this? Um, and I stumbled across Jochebed, who, as Rick has already said, um, is my favorite, one of my favorite Bible characters. Um, she's a heroine in my life. And I'm just going to, I, you know, the girls and I used to have a blog and I just, I wrote this out, this story of Jochebed as the Lord began to really unpack her life to me. And I'm just going to read this because that's what Rick asked me to do. <laughs> See, I'm such an obedient wife. <laughs> First, I'm going to read Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. Very familiar passage. So where's Ron? Don't check out just because it's familiar. Where is he? We had a talk earlier about that, and I didn't put this in a different translation. This is good old New King James. A man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. And I know you all know the backstory here. She's hiding him because Pharaoh's in the land and sending his soldiers out to exterminate every baby boy. Lovely, lovely time to be alive, right? Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, do you remember her? She was hiding in the reeds. Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. Amram, who's the Levite in our story, married Jochebed, the Levite woman, in the midst of a wayward generation, surrounded by unfaithful people who had ceased to fear the Lord. On top of that, they were suffering in slavery, bondage to cruel Pharaoh. 
when I comprehended Jacobed's situation, I realized I related to her. I too lived in the midst of a wayward generation who no longer loved and feared God, but were enslaved to Satan, the cruelest of masters. We were in the same boat, this Jacobed and, and me. We were living these circumstances as wife and mother. I liked her already. I also knew the outcome of her life. In spite of such incredible adversity, she and Amram raised up three children who walked in faith and functioned in leadership as a prophet, a priest, and a prophetess. Now she had my attention. I figured I just might learn a thing or two from this woman and what a woman she proved to be. First questions I had, hmm, how did she do this? What was her part? What would be my correlating part? I turned to Psalm 144, verses 11 and 12, also two of my favorite scriptures. It was a starting point for me because what does a righteous mother do in the midst of an ungodly nation and culture? She begins by crying out to God. This is Psalm 144. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouth speaks lying words, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as pillars, sculptured in palace style. Well, you could preach on that all day, but I'm not even going to start. I just knew that that was the cry of a righteous mother's heart. Basically, she's crying out saying, oh, that we would be freed from the deception all around, rightly discerning the enemy's lies. And oh, that our children might be different from the rest. This is a righteous mother's cry. She desires sons who are mature beyond their years and able to produce Daughters who are strong and beautiful, ready to bear much weight. And she understood something really important. She understood that it began with her discernment. She cried out, rescue me, deliver me. First, she had to gain understanding of truth she had to discard the falsehoods all around her. <sighs> In our original text, we see that she understood some fundamental truths about God and his creation. You know, I'm just going to insert a couple of thoughts here. As I was reading this over, I was like, yes, the thoughts that swirl in our culture of evolution. And how much have we allowed that to taint our view of children and the conception of children and the value of children and the value of life and the direction of life and the purpose of life. Wow, we have to be careful. We need to know our God. Um, <clears throat> remember our scripture, it said, the woman conceived and bore a son and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. I stopped there and I said, why, 
Why does the scripture point out that she saw that he was a beautiful child? Doesn't every mother think that? Do you really believe that Johnny is a genius when his mother says to you, oh, my Johnny is so incredible? Or do you maybe assume that eh, he's no more special than my Johnny? Uh -huh. I mean, come on, right? Yeah. Right? Of course she saw that he was beautiful. What's the big deal? Why is that there? Well, I thought about that and I said, well, Jochebed, first of all, came to this conclusion without any outward signs. There was no angelic visitation. I mean, some of the, some of the births in the Bible have angelic visitation. That's helpful. <laughs> um, there was no prophet bringing a special word. There was no Hollywood music score in the background. I hear Hollywood everywhere. What can I say? Um, it was just a baby. Remember, you know the funny line from Johnny Carson whenever he meets and sees a new newborn baby, and they're not always, you know, they're not always so great looking. <laughs> Johnny Carson's line was, well, that's a baby. <laughs> and that, that's what Moses was, a baby, you know? Um, she saw what every mother can see if they look with eyes of faith. If they look with eyes of faith. Now, I thought to myself, maybe every mother does see the beauty. Huh. If that was the case, why wasn't the river full of baby boats? Did they truly see and know and know? that their baby boy was beautiful? In whose eyes was the beauty beheld? Only theirs or God's as well? According to the scriptures, we are all beautiful. We are all made in his image. We are all unique. And we are all precious, every one of us. And you guys know that. You know that. Ungodly cultures, the one that she lived in, the one that we live in, they don't comprehend that kind of truth. There's deception and lies abound. But Jacobed, she, she, she had godly wisdom. She had eyes to see the truth. And she was delivered from wicked falsehoods. She understood that this child was beautiful not only to her, but to God himself. So uh, that's the beginning of true love for children. A godly mother has God helping her to see that, to discern that, to understand that that's who this child is. That is the beginning of true love for children. Mm -hmm. God really birthed something in my heart through this story of Jochebed an understanding that his love for them is great. He personally creates them, carefully forming them in the womb. Every day of their life is planned, the scripture says, they are full of purpose. I mean, those little things, <laughs> they are like dynamite. They are jam-packed with purpose and with destiny. You and I can't see that unless we look with eyes of faith. I mean, they are helpless 
snotty-nosed things that, <laughs> that interrupt our life. But they are jam-packed with purpose and with destiny. And he loves them passionately. Amen. Passionately. Um, it says in Hebrews that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's command. Amen. That kind of vision says, I got something bigger than what this king is talking about. I got something better. I can't be afraid of that because this is more important. That's, that's the way faith motivates parents. Jochebed and Amram had eyes of faith that enabled them to see their child as God sees them. She, they recognized his beauty. They truly saw his beauty because of faith, which not seeing believes and not seeing hopes. And because they understood God's hand in his creation, that motivated their faith. God makes good things. He endows his creation with purpose and destiny, and he stamps his own image on each and every person. What could be more precious and more beautiful? Jacobin and Amram recognized all these things. They had learned wisdom in the midst of a foolish and ungodly generation, determining to flee from falsehood and deception. How desperately we need to follow that example. All around us, lies are whispered in our ears, conveyed in our entertainment, shouted from our platforms more than ever now that we have social media. Abortion would lead us to believe there's nothing special and unique about a creation of a child. Euthanasia tells us there's no value in the quality of life, in a certain quality of life, excuse me. Abandonment. Abuse, all those things underscore that we, our culture, we have a serious lack of understanding that each individual is handcrafted by the master craftsman, precious gifts from him. If everybody was aware of that, if our culture was championing that, we wouldn't have the abuse issues we have. We wouldn't have the abandonment issues we have. So what does one do once that realization comes to them. What did Jochebed do, okay? First, we see from our text that she and her husband walked in faith toward God, obeying him and not fearing the king. Their confidence in him emboldened them, and they were not afraid. So I said to myself, Dar, you can't be afraid. Whatever it is God says, you can't be afraid. When we grasp these truths about our children, we gain confidence. Confidence to act boldly and enough confidence to impart to them. They begin to know they are precious. They are wonderful. They are his craftsmanship, and he is good. I have no idea where I just was. Do you know where I just was? <laughs> there. Um, we will begin to speak precious words to them, and they will grow up with a knowledge of his great love and purpose in their lives. We know he has spoken words of hope and a future. When we believe deep in our hearts, when this awareness has penetrated our very souls, we will understand our need to nurture and protect 
this precious heritage of God. We know that they are special to him, and we begin to see our part in his plan for their lives. So, some of the key things now about Jacobid. She saw his beauty, not casually, but deeply. She truly saw and understood his beauty. Faith in her God caused her to be bold, acting without fear on her child's behalf. That's our portion. That's our portion. We are stewards. So what, what, what happens next? <laughs> she puts him in a basket. <laughs> Do you think that's a little strange and funny? I'm like, wow, that was a creative idea. <laughs> she, she couldn't hide him any longer. She hid him until she could do, no, do so no longer. So she puts him on the river. What was she thinking? How long could that have worked? I doubt that she thought it was perfect. Mm. But it was an effort. All right. All right. Yep. At least she didn't give up altogether and let the soldiers take him. It was the best she could do. And God did the rest. Let's remember that. Let's remember that. It's really significant. We do not have to provide all the protection, all the deliverance, all the care. We build a basket. We place him in it. We hide it. We're doing the best we can to shield him from his enemy. God does the rest. Amen. 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 Okay? We are not the Savior. But, sh- but God has given us his very best to watch over. And we need to give our very best. We need to do everything within us. We need to be resourceful and willing and courageous and brave. And we need to depend on Jesus for all of that. So just look at what God does next. God plunders the enemy. Pharaoh's money pays Jacobed. So not only is she able to continue nursing him and caring for him with his protection from the Pharaoh, but she gets paid for it. Wow, that's not a bad deal. Sort of. Sort of. There's initially great joy at this beautiful boy's safekeeping. Can you imagine when Miriam runs home and tells her mama, he was found, oh no, he was found. Oh no, it's good mama, it's good mama. She's gonna pay you, I'm gonna bring him back to you. You're gonna nurse him and raise him. You're gonna care for him. But the cold reality soon sets in. Wow, I'm gonna nurse this baby boy. I'm gonna care for him and invest in him, and then I'm going to give him to her. Wow, how can she do this? What, what, what is she going to have to do to prepare herself? What, what, must she, what, what, what must she do, and how is she going to do that? Wow, Jacobed gains my deepest admiration at this point. Oh, she's been really good up till now, no doubt. She's a real winner already, but now it's going to get really tough, and she proves to be up for the task. Put yourself in her position. Many women would make this decision. 
I will provide the physical sustenance, but I will not get emotionally close to this baby. That, that will hurt too much. After all, I, I'm going to be giving him over to her in just a few short years. It will be easier for me if I just remain detached. I, I'll keep my distance. Did you catch those words? It will be easier for me. Those words are destroyers and not builders. Those words will usher in compromise, not excellence. Those words allow harm instead of protection. Don't let those words dictate your actions ever. Jacobed did not. How do I know? Consider the following. By faith, Moses, when he was born, this is from Hebrews again, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By faith, Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. You know, as a child, Moses was sent to Pharaoh's house. He was probably four to six years old. That was the typical age for weaning a child in that culture. And I have to think that Jacobed, um, I was going to say milk that for all it was worth. But that, <laughs> <laughs> we won't go there strike that one <laughs> um, yet we see that when he becomes a man when he's of age he was well established in the knowledge of who his God was who his people were and where his allegiance should be hmm I don't think Pharaoh's daughter taught him those things. Mm. How was this accomplished? He's four, five, six years old. Jacobed had a limited window of opportunity, and believe it or not, so do we. We must win their hearts, earn their trust, establish their allegiance to God at an early age, if possible. Imagine Jacobed's choices here, either remain emotionally aloof for her own sake or pour everything she had into him for God's purposes. It seems that she chose the latter, not withholding her love, but investing great care, taking every opportunity afforded her. She prayed over him while she nursed him. Stories about God's great faithfulness were told while she changed him. Words of his own destiny as an Israelite were shared while she stirred the stew with him playing at her feet. She knit her heart to his, consequently knitting the heart of her son to her very own God. She wisely stewarded this precious life which God had granted into her keeping for a few short years, regardless of the pain she knew she would soon experience. Oh, to me, she's a wonderful 
hero. My heart swells with painful emotion just imagining that fateful day when she would escort him to Pharaoh's courts. Was she silent as they walked? Perhaps. Most everything had been said over and over again in preparation for this eventful day. Now she was considering what words of farewell should be spoken. She wanted to carefully choose those precious words that would forever remain as her parting thoughts to this beautiful son. At last they arrived. Looking long at Pharaoh's daughter, she gives a sober nod of acknowledgement. The time has come. She knew it would, had hoped that somehow it wouldn't, but it has. Turning to him, this boy of hers, she tenderly gives him that final and meaningful embrace, whispering into his ear a few carefully crafted words, one crowning reminder of her love and more importantly, God's love. She hopes that these parting phrases will forever resonate in his being. As she releases him, she smiles bravely at Pharaoh's daughter, thanking her for the opportunity to serve her, giving her son one more assuring glance. She turns and leaves him forever. Because of her deep love for him and his needs, she refrains from looking back, hoping to lend her strength to him one last time. Now the tears well up as she courageously walks away. When alone at last, the floodgates of emotion are released. The pain will last a lifetime. Oh, my heart. But her job had been done faithfully. God would use all those words and stories and kisses and embraces, and God would faithfully recall every whispered prayer. God would remember the destiny he had planned for this young man who had been saved from his enemy so that such destiny could be fulfilled. This is the kind of sacrifice every mother must perform for every child is endowed with great destiny, greater than you or I can imagine, we have been granted the privilege of protecting and nurturing that destiny. And it's also true that every child has an enemy, God's enemy. We must open our eyes and see the danger. The word must be studied, ingested, and allowed to birth faith so that we don't respond in fear or selfishness, but with boldness in the face of that enemy. This is no small task. But who wants to live for insignificance anyway? Okay, I'll choose to follow in Jacobet's steps, crying out to God for children who are leaders in the midst of an ungodly generation. I will open my eyes to recognize that their beauty, their eternal destiny is in God. In bold faith, I will endeavor to practice creative means of protection from destruction before their time of maturity has come. I will speak life-filled words into their hearts and invest my love, pray faithfully, and in due season, I will release them to fulfill God's continued unique plan. No matter the cost, regardless of the pain, his way is my desire 
and therein lies my deepest joy. I can give them nothing better than a knowledge of his love, his plan, and his desire. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. Powerful.